Everyone seems to be talking about making a big deal. Not just a few agreements here and there, but one huge package designed to fix just about everything. And the war, return the hostages, formal peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia, contain Iran, and the biggest prize of all, an actual Palestinian state. Just about everyone's a winner, which also means that just about everyone will have to give up something. And therein lies the rub. There are a lot of potential spoilers. And the grand deal depends on each component being strong enough to prop up the ones above it, like a tower of blocks, until the independent Palestinian state and the secure Israel are resting solidly atop the entire edifice. So the question is whether this can work. Will Joe Biden be in office long enough to see it through? Can Hamas be reasoned with? Can a Palestinian authority be reformed? Will Israeli politics allow for it? Will the Israeli public? This corner of the Middle East is littered with big agreements that were either rejected, went nowhere, or fell apart after a few years. There's always room for optimism, of course, but given that this agreement is being driven by the Western powers, primarily the United States and Europe, it's healthy to be skeptical. They're even hinting about quote-unquote imposing this solution on a reluctant Israel, which seems like a recipe for disaster. But the war is at a difficult moment. The reality may be that Israel cannot both free the hostages and eliminate Hamas, and that leaves the door open for other solutions. Some on the Israeli right are calling for a reoccupation of Gaza. Others on the center and the left are calling for a kind of international consortium to govern the Strip instead. So maybe there really is a deal to be had. So today, let's take a look at the elements of this deal, each one building on the next in a stack of interlocking bricks that all have to fit together. Where are the strengths? Where are the weaknesses? Can this edifice possibly hold? This podcast has gone from a hobby to full-time work, and it's 100% supported by your donations. So thanks so much to all those who have been donating to keep this educational project going. There you are at your favorite Jewish deli, knocking back a bagel and locks and waiting for the slow Wi-Fi to download the latest episode. While that's happening, head over to my website at jewautonode.com. While you're there, please consider a donation and, to boot, sign up for my newsletter. Why? Because I will have something exciting to announce soon, a way for you to get even more Jewish and Israeli history coming your way. Now let's get back into today's episode. I'm your host, Jason Harris. And this is Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. This big deal we're talking about involves several different components each one coming before the next to build up to the big finale of a Palestinian state. First is ending the war, then comes what is called normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, everything from exchanging ambassadors to trade and tourism. And then the final stage, establishing an independent Palestinian state in both the West Bank and Gaza, under the control of a single Palestinian government. Each stage is fraught with difficulties, and if any one fails, then probably so do the rest. The first stage is ending the war in Gaza, and for that, Israel will need to do three things. One is a ceasefire. 
The second is withdrawing its troops from Gaza. And the third is releasing a large number of Palestinian prisoners, perhaps several thousand, most of them Hamas, many of them murderers. For its part, Hamas will have to do two things, return all the hostages, including the dead ones they are holding, and secondly, its leadership will have to give up power, probably by going into exile. Let's tackle Israel first. If we were just talking a ceasefire for hostages, like what happened back in November, then we'd probably be on fairly firm ground here. But four months into this war, Israeli society is showing splits in opinion. Israel is up against a strategic dilemma, which is a fancy way of saying that it's come to the point in this war where its two goals are starting to look incompatible, saving all the hostages and eliminating Hamas. A decision might have to be made between the two, and this is where things get complicated. That decision is just impossibly terrible on its own, and not everyone agrees on what strategy is working, that is, negotiations or continued military action. Some argue to continue the campaign until Yahya Sinwar, the leader of Hamas, is completely surrounded in his last bunker with his last few soldiers. Then he'll trade the hostages' lives for his own, thus achieving both goals. But others fear that if he's cornered, he'd rather die a martyr and execute the remaining hostages. Families of the hostages have been staging public demonstrations, shutting down highways, protesting outside politicians' houses, and even blocking humanitarian aid from being transferred into Gaza. They're putting enormous pressure on the government to act now to bring the hostages home. For them, if a ceasefire is the deal on the table, then take the deal. But pushing back is a movement of reservists, families of the reservists, and displaced Israelis who haven't been able to return to their homes near the border. They argue, first, that their sons and daughters aren't fighting and dying just to hand Gaza right back to Hamas. Second, that the military pressure is actually working, and that keeping up the campaign will eventually force Hamas to give up the hostages to buy themselves a ticket out of there. And third, that the tens of thousands of displaced Israelis aren't going to return to their homes until they're sure that no one is going to come across the border again. That means the elimination of Hamas. And then there's the additional complication of Hamas's demand to release prisoners. Remember, Israel did this before. In 2011, Israel exchanged over a thousand prisoners for a single captured soldier. Many of those prisoners went on to kill Israelis, including on October 7th, including Yahya Sinwar. So Israelis can be confident that prisoners released now will kill again. So you've got about 100 living hostages still in Gaza, somewhere around 80,000 Israelis who can't return to their homes, some 200,000 reservists committed to fighting as long as it takes to defeat Hamas, around 6,000 Hamas prisoners in Israeli jails who could be released, close to 2 million Palestinians displaced within Gaza, and nearly 10 million Israelis who won't be able to predict where and when the next attack will come, and are expecting their government to eliminate the threat. Do you sacrifice the 100 hostages now for the future sake of the entire country? Or do you do, as the hostage families insist, whatever it takes to free them now and manage the consequences later on. The moral quandary is beyond anguishing, and it's impossible to know what the right answer is. But Israel may soon have to make a decision.
Let's say that Israel cuts a ceasefire deal that sees the hostages slowly return over a period of several months until the last one is finally home. Then the next day, Hamas launches a rocket. Remember, that's a war crime and an act of war, and Israel has every legal right to then resume its campaign having not been the one to break the ceasefire. But you can imagine that in the previous several months, Hamas has retaken all the territory in Gaza that Israel withdrew from, and shored up all the tunnels and infrastructure that Israel hasn't hit yet. Is Israel really going to invade all over again? With Hamas now having an additional several thousand terrorists who were released from Israeli jails, replacing the ones who Israel has already killed. The United States has dropped hints that it wouldn't support Israel resuming its campaign after a long ceasefire. It's unclear whether that's the case, even if Hamas strikes again. So the ceasefire deal has to come with the forced exile of Hamas's leaders from Gaza, sending them off to some fancy villas in the beautiful desert of Qatar, where hopefully in due time, Israel can assassinate them. But would that work? Would removing the leadership from Gaza be enough to prevent the group from reorganizing, rearming, and maintaining their hold over Gaza and its people? The only way to stop its leaders from trying to run things from afar is to kill them. We can imagine that if Yahya Sinwar is holed up in a bunker in Gaza right now, he's probably never more than six feet from the nearest Israeli hostage to prevent Israel from dropping an airstrike on him. Is he really going to give up his safety card and agree to go into exile? And then there's this. Many, if not most Israelis, argue that cutting a deal now means losing the war. If Israel ceases its campaign and withdraws its troops, leaving Hamas and its leaders still intact and able to wage war, then Israel has lost. Hamas will claim victory. Yahya Sinwar will be the great hero who defeated the Zionists. Hezbollah will believe that Israel is vulnerable and can't sustain a military campaign. And those tens of thousands of displaced Israelis will never return home, turning entire areas of Israel into a permanent no-man's land. Having failed to prevent October 7th, and then again failing to win the war to prevent it from happening again, Israel's government will be in complete tatters. All this might be too juicy of an opportunity for Hezbollah and Iran to give up. We could be looking at yet another war. One of the reasons for Israel's remarkable show of unity these past months is the nationwide determination to win this war, whatever the costs and however long it takes. There seems to be almost no appetite to walk away from that. And yet, it is not necessarily the case that making a hostage deal now precludes going after Hamas again later. All it would take is one Hamas attack to galvanize Israel into responding, and here we go again. So you can see how difficult this all is, even with just the first stage of the deal, which involves ending the war. Impossible choices, and where it comes to the hostages, unthinkable ones. But let's say some kind of breakthrough moment happens that draws the war to a close or a long-term ceasefire. The next step is that Saudi Arabia comes into the picture. Saudi Arabia is where Islam began. It's also a Sunni Muslim country, in contrast to Iran, which is Shia. 
The difference goes back to the beginnings of Islam, and this intra-religious conflict has turned into a geopolitical one, as the two countries vie for dominance in the Middle East. Add in Saudi Arabia's money, oil, and influence over the other Persian Gulf Arab countries, and it is, along with Egypt, the most powerful Arab country. Mohammed bin Salman is the crown prince and the effective ruler of Saudi Arabia. He's ruthless and authoritarian, but also reform-minded. He's slowly easing up on the kingdom's harsh religious rules and oil-dependent economy. In other words, the Saudis are major players here. Now, Saudi Arabia and Israel are only 10 miles apart across the Gulf of Aqaba in Israel's south. There's a great hike outside a lot from which you can actually see Saudi Arabia on a clear day, which is very cool. But officially, the countries are hostile, with no diplomatic relations. Saudi Arabia still does not officially recognize the state of Israel. That's been changing in recent years, as the two countries have increased their cooperation. Just before October 7th, the two were ready to announce an historic agreement for normalization. That is, dealing with each other as two normal countries would. Israel would get official recognition from Saudi Arabia, the last big remaining peace prize amongst the Arab states, which would be a major victory for Israel's diplomacy and security. Saudi Arabia would get the benefit of economic ties to Israel, including coveted high-tech materials and know-how that would be very useful against the two countries' arch-rival, Iran. The Saudis have also been promised benefits from the United States, such as a defense treaty and support for a civilian nuclear program. This was the plan that was interrupted by Hamas's attack on October 7th, which is why so many think that Iran had something to do with it. In Israel-Saudi partnership is exactly what Iran doesn't want, because that's a relationship strong enough to contain Iran to its corner of the Middle East. In any case, the Saudis have indicated that normalization is still the plan, and there's every reason to expect this effort to get back underway once the war is resolved. But now, there's a catch. Whereas before, the Saudis were content for the agreement to include vague ideas about some kind of support for the Palestinians, now the Saudis want the deal to include a solid commitment by Israel for a Palestinian state. And not some unidentified vague date in the future, but a concrete schedule, the specifics of which are apparently being negotiated. Saudi normalization would be a massive win for Israel, and especially for Benjamin Netanyahu. He is credited with the Abraham Accords, the previous round of peacemaking that saw Israel form ties with Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Morocco, and Sudan. Bibi the peacemaker sounds a lot better than Bibi the security failure. That might even be worth the price of a Palestinian state. If there's some kind of viable end to the war with Hamas, then we've got Saudi normalization happening. Two huge wins. But the Saudi deal now seems contingent on the creation of a Palestinian state, the greatest prize of all, the two-state solution to end Middle Eastern conflict. And here's where we run into perhaps the most complicated trouble of all. What kind of Palestinian state are we talking about here? The difficulty about Palestinian statehood comes down to this, and it's a tough question, and perhaps even some ways unfair, but here it is. 
What if this independent Palestinian state isn't a democracy? There are any number of scenarios here, but let's ask two further questions. One is, what if the Palestinian state looks much like the West Bank now? Corrupt and authoritarian, but ultimately cooperative with and peaceful towards Israel. Second question, what if it's corrupt and authoritarian, but decides, as an independent country, to align itself with Iran and become a threat to Israel? The argument for the two-state solution has always been that the Palestinians need and deserve their own independent state, and that such an arrangement must also be to Israel's security benefit. But what if that can't be achieved? Let's take the first question. What if Palestine is not a democracy, but more a continuation of what the Palestinian Authority is now? Authoritarian and corrupt, but also not a threat to Israel. If the state of Palestine is terrible to its own people, but is ultimately not hostile to Israel, is it still a good idea to create such a state? Is the world willing to sell out the Palestinians' well-being as long as the country doesn't turn into Hamas? That would seem a terrible cruelty of history that once again the Palestinian people's aspirations are betrayed for the sake of bigger geopolitical machinations. And yet as Elliot Abrams at the Council on Foreign Relations writes, none of the key players here are talking about the future Palestine as a democracy. Instead, they are repeating the mantra of a two-state solution without the follow-through questions. Diplomats and politicians, he writes, quote, want a way out that seems fair and just to voters and makes for good speeches. But they are not even beginning to grapple with the issues that negotiating a two-state solution raises, and they are not seriously asking what kind of state Palestine would be. Instead, they simply imagine a peaceful, well-ordered place called Palestine and assure everyone that it is just around the corner, end quote. Abrams writes that, quote, Palestine might be free, but no one seems to care whether the Palestinians will be, end quote. Of course, there's also the question of whether the Palestinian Authority can even be reformed to the extent necessary to establish democratic governance. They are corrupt and deeply hated by the Palestinians, but there doesn't seem to be anyone else plausible to put in charge. And while everyone is talking about reforming and revitalizing the PA, there's not much discussion of how to make that coincide with the imminent creation of a Palestinian state. Elliot Abrams writes that the Arab states aren't pushing for it because they're not democracies. And the Europeans and Americans aren't because they don't believe the Palestinians can create a working democracy. Quote, So the US and the EU are willing to create a Palestinian state in the hope that it would, it would be a better autocracy than it is at present better at policing the terrorist groups, better at fighting corruption, and less repressive, end quote. In other words, there doesn't seem to be a way to guarantee a Palestinian democracy, and it doesn't seem like too many people are interested in belaboring the point. So if the future Palestinian state is going to remain an authoritarian country, what happens if it becomes outright hostile to Israel? We know that Iran is going to desperately insert itself into the Palestinian state to stock it with militant groups and proxy armies like Hamas and Gaza and Hezbollah and Lebanon and Syria. So how's the international community going to guarantee that Hamas doesn't take over? 
Imagine this scenario. An authoritarian Palestinian state aligns itself with Iran, or is otherwise helpless to prevent Iranian elements from bringing weapons into the West Bank. Because the borders of Palestine come so close to the landing approach at Ben Gurion Airport in Israel, a passenger jet is shot down. Israel has to respond to this act of war, except now it's not Israel against a terrorist group, but against a sovereign nation-state seven miles from Tel Aviv. Will the international community get what's going on, or will Israel be once again condemned for its aggression and genocide against the Palestinians? To prevent this scenario, politicians are imagining that the Palestinian state will be demilitarized, that is, not be permitted to have its own army, and therefore not ever need to import weapons that could be used against Israel. But there's no way to guarantee this, and it's likely to be up to Israel to head off any weapons. Israel somewhat regularly conducts airstrikes on Iranian weapons being shipped through Syria. But without the Israeli army patrolling the West Bank as it does now, Israel will have to make use of this kind of preventative strike. Again, will the international community get what's going on, or will Israel be condemned for airstrikes on the sovereign state of Palestine? The point here isn't to dismissively condemn the Palestinian people as unwanting or unable to establish a peaceful state. Given the right variables, they probably could. Underneath the recent decades of violence lies actual real efforts at nonviolent resistance and grassroots democracy, even during times of intense conflict like the Second Intifada in the early 2000s. The question is whether those forces can still be mustered, or whether Palestinian national liberation has, instead, become focused on the elimination of Israel at all costs. For Palestine to not be a threat to Israel, Hamas has to be eliminated and Iran has to be contained, along with all the terrorist groups it supports against Israel. Otherwise, you end up with a Palestinian state that is bigger, more powerful, and a more legitimate version of today's Gaza, a situation that would be intolerable to Israel. If the two-state solution means the creation of a hostile Palestinian state, that's no solution at all. And that's before we even get to the politics. Joe Biden might not be president a year from now. There's no telling how that might change the situation, the United States' commitment to the two-state solution, and its willingness to continue pushing Israel in that direction. But even if Biden stays on, Israeli politics is at the moment not really open to this scheme. Benjamin Netanyahu's government is dead set against the creation of a Palestinian state. Some of his ministers even want to reoccupy Gaza as does a substantial portion of the Israeli electorate, which is a topic I want to get into later on. Netanyahu has outright rejected the plan that would see a prolonged ceasefire, the phased return of the hostages, and the release of thousands of Hamas terrorists from jail. It's too much of a win for Hamas, leaving them in place to regroup and retain power in Gaza. Hamas has announced once again their intention to commit more October 7th massacres, so Israel's determination to wipe them out is not in any sense irrational. Yet the war is approaching this stalemate between eliminating Hamas and saving the hostages. 
At this point, most of Gaza's population and presumably the Hamas leadership and the hostages are all smushed together in the southern end of the Gaza Strip, close into Egypt, where the Israeli army is finding it harder to operate. They can't send the civilians back up to the north of Gaza because Hamas will just go with them. The IDF can't evacuate civilians into Egypt because Egypt won't allow it. And the Israeli government doesn't have any plan, or even a debate on a plan, of what to do the day after. Netanyahu continues to insist on absolute victory as Israelis struggle to understand just what that means now. So we have a tall order here. The end of the war, the return of the hostages, the elimination of Hamas as a threat, diplomatic normalization with Saudi Arabia, and the creation of a Palestinian state that will neither threaten Israel nor oppress its own Palestinian citizens. But there are a lot of potential spoilers out there gunning to wreck this plan. Hamas and Iran, elements of Israel's government, a broken Palestinian authority that won't easily reform or give up power, and the uncertainties of global politics, especially the United States election. Still, it's better to talk than to fight. If there is a way out of this mess, it's worth consideration and negotiation. The time may not be right, and the plan may not work. But no one in this conflict can live like this forever. For now, the war drags on. The hostages' lives hang in the balance, Palestinians continue to suffer, and the world struggles to figure out a way forward. You can find me at jewodono.com, and my email is jewodonopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Yisrael Chai, the Jewish people live.